Just a quick moment to say a big thank you to my sponsor for this episode, Drowsy. Anyone who suffers from anxiety or stress will know just how detrimental poor sleep can be to your well-being. I, like you, know that a good night's sleep is profoundly healing and can really improve the quality of your life, which is why I've invested in a drowsy sleep mask, as it guarantees that I'm going to wake up feeling great. I know what you're all thinking. It's just a sleep mask. But I can tell you it's unlike any sleep mask I've ever used. It has transformed the quality of my sleep. I'm sleeping better than ever before, in total darkness, and rarely wake up during the night. It's made from padded silk, which wraps around your head, and I can't tell you how heavenly it feels. And I don't wake up with any horrible skin creases or puffy eyes. You can't put a price on being able to sleep well every night, and it's reassuring knowing that whatever day you've had, you can go home and wrap yourself in drowsy and drift off. So if you're in need of the best night's sleep ever, Drowsy is the answer. Head to drowsysleepco.com and use the code JULIA for 25% off of any of their sleep accessories today. That's drowsysleepco.com, D-R-O-W-S-Y, and use the code JULIA, J-U-L-I-A, for 25% off. Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Dr. Maya Shankar. I am so thrilled that you've agreed to join me on our podcast. You're a cognitive scientist and the creator, host, and executive producer of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans. And you work for Google now, and you were a senior advisor for Barack Obama on his behavioral science insights. Is there anything else I need to say about you as a descriptor? that I haven't included, because that to me is by no means how I think of you as or labels. I think of you as a warm, fantastic, fabulous human being. Well, that's so sweet, Julia. And as you know, I'll, I'll take any excuse to get to spend time with you. So I'm grateful for you to have me on. Well, thank you. My first question is, what is a particular challenge you have faced or are facing? Wow, so many. Um, because everyone else I'm living. <laughs> so I feel like life is just full of, of challenges, expected and ex- unexpected challenges. Um, I mean, one particularly salient one that comes to mind is uh, challenges that my husband and I have had uh, on the fertility front over the last few years. So 
Um, we knew fairly early on that we would need to use a gestational surrogate in order to have a baby. And um, after years of, you know, creating embryos for embryo creation, yeah, like we had to do the fertility treatments. Yeah. I mean, that in itself is so painful. And it took such a you know, psychologically every time, isn't it? It's a huge mountain to climb and then the disappointment. I think sometimes it's trivialized, like, oh, freeze your eggs. And you just think like you pop in and out of the clinic and it's it's so much more extensive and emotionally and physically arduous than that. And I, I don't know if I was fully prepared for what was to come, but in both cases, we did um, two embryo freezing rounds, Jimmy and I, and uh I got hyperstimulated in both cases, which is a rare side effect. But what does that mean, hyperstimulated? It means you have an overreaction to some of the um, egg stimulation drugs. And so what ended up happening was fluid leaked into my chest cavity at one point during the recovery. And I was just really sick for a while. It was really painful to breathe. It was painful to talk. I couldn't laugh. Um, and I just remember thinking, wow, this is a lot more challenging than I was led to believe, you know, based on what I'd read in popular culture about about this process. Because the kind of popular culture is it's a it's a day procedure. You pop in, you know, they do a few things to you and you pop out. Exactly. Whereas actually you're you're getting multiple injections a day. I mean, you know, anyone listening to this who's gone through it could definitely resonate, but it's not a fun few weeks. And then I certainly did not expect that the recovery would be so prolonged and potentially risky. And then you found a surrogate? We did. Having frozen your embryos and kind of full of potential and possibility, like, Phew. Exactly. Yeah, we found our, a surrogate and we've been searching for so long. It's it's really, really hard to find someone that you're going to trust carrying your baby, yeah. right? I mean, and it, 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 it starts out often being a total stranger. I mean, some people work with surrogates who they know, but in our case, we were working for an agency, so it was going to be someone we had never met before. And after, you know, failed matches, we we finally got introduced to a woman named Haley, uh, who lives in in Arkansas. And I just remember that first call; it was kind of love at first sight. Mm. I, we felt an immediate kinship and felt so comfortable with one another. And usually, what will happen, Julia, after these calls is um, they let you go back and discuss with your partner and see how you feel, you know, 48 hours later. But on both sides, both on Haley's side and our side, um, we just wrote a note saying yes right away within, you know, two seconds of, of ending the call. And so it really felt, I don't believe in destiny, but it felt like it was a powerful match uh, and that it was a blessing that we're going to be able to have this relationship together. And the power of finding someone where it's so mutual, where you could see she was responding to you and the relational kind of build. Yes. And that's love. Like you said, it was kinship. It's felt like family straight away, a different kind of love, but a really powerful love. It it really is. And it's it's such an interesting psychological process because it's not a friendship. And yet in our case, it very quickly became that. And I don't know if we were expecting that. I mean, you're evaluating matches based on someone's pregnancy history. Like that's not normally what you would do engaging whether you want to be friends with a person. And so we were just surprised by the degree of comfort we felt so quickly with one another. And I just felt in my heart that she was someone I could really trust um, with, again, this, this huge responsibility. I remember thinking, given that, we have to go through this experience I can't carry naturally. This is truly the best case scenario is that Haley gets to carry our child. Wow. 
So that's, I mean, just even I can feel the calm in that, you know, given that I've come to terms as best I can, that I can't carry our child. I really trust and, you know, this most precious of relationships yeah. with with my embryos, our embryos, uh, that I trust that she yeah. will do that. That is, that is big as it gets, right? Yeah. And I, I remember her conveying to us that what mattered most to her was us feeling comfortable in this process. And I just immediately got the sense that she was going to always keep us, keep us top of mind throughout this process. And that's a tall order. We just talked about the egg freezing, embryo freezing part of it. I mean, she has to go through the other end of IVF, which is priming the uterus and getting ready for the a very elaborate procedure. And I just felt it was there was such a selflessness of spirit where she was just constantly thinking about us and and the kind of transparency that we would want as intended parents in this process. And it was very moving to meet someone with that kind of orientation because it would have been enough for her to just say, look, I've carried three kids before. I'm going to do this as best I can. Uh, just trust me. Instead, she really brought us in um, to the process and said, you know, what do you care most about? When, it, when I am pregnant, like what are the types of things I can do to reassure you? And to me, that it just felt like she was going above and beyond in, in so many ways. And really co-parenting with you and that kind of that was love in action, like being loving in responding to you and including you and wanting to know, you know, what was important to you because this was for you. Yeah, it was a beautiful expression of humanity, I guess is the best yeah. way that I would describe it. And I, I just remember feeling overwhelmed by that interaction because you, you, you nailed it when you used the word calm. A sense of calm descended on me in a process that is so ripe with anxiety and stress and dread at times. Um, you are looking for any moments of calm and equanimity. And that's what I felt when I was, was talking with Haley. And then... So we do our first embryo transfer, um, and this was in February of 2020. So just just as the world was starting to shut down, uh, it was just weeks before uh, we did the the embryo transfer. And um, yeah, I just remember getting a WhatsApp message from her where she was showing me images from the previous five days of darkening lines on the pregnancy test. And I was at work and I think I just squealed. I mean, I was so excited. Um, I couldn't believe we were so lucky that the transfer worked on that first try because I think it's probably around a 50% chance um, that, that any given transfer will work if you've, if you've had your embryos tested. And so um, we were just over the moon. And um, it, it was so joyful because there's now a third person who shares this joy with you, which is not something everyone gets to experience. I think in that moment, it felt like we were now family, which was interesting. I mean, when I saw those lines, those pregnancy test lines, I remember thinking, wow, Haley is my, is my family now. And hopefully yeah. I am to her. And that was really beautiful. And we, in that moment too, I realized there's just no one else I would want to do this experience with. She, she's the right person for us. Yeah. And I can really see that the joy of that memory is still in you. It's like you light up. Yeah. It's two and a half years ago at this point, but it feels so fresh when I go. I remember sitting again in my office and feeling so nervous during the day. You know, what are we going to find out? What are we going to find out? These processes are accompanied by such a complexity of emotions, right? And I think that's so important to, to capture. It's like you're feeling... Um, anxiety and then you feel a moment of relief and you feel more anxiety and then you feel another moment of relief. It's such a complicated emotional space to navigate. 
And in any given moment, you're, you're, you're feeling a wide range of feelings. <laughs> and so um, I, I think because I was overwhelmed by that diversity of feelings and the range of feelings and the unpredictability of feelings. And the roller coaster, it's like, it sounds like really being on a ride. Absolutely. And given my, it's a great point. I think given that I am by nature a more type A personality who likes being in the driver's seat, who likes controlling outcomes, who loves input output processes where the harder mm. you try, um, the more likely it is a good thing happens. And, you know, anything in the realm of fertility humbles you instantly because no amount of hard work, no amount of hustle, you know, with my podcast, I'll just spend like hours and hours and hours preparing for every single interview. I become obsessive about it. And I try to increase the odds that the interview goes well. And, um, you can will your body as much as you want um, to do anything or, you know, in the case of Haley, just hoping and hoping that it'll lead to a pregnancy, but you're really not in control. And it's a, it's a humbling experience. It's a growth experience for someone with my personality. I felt like I, um, I was forced to confront uncertainty in a way that felt very acute. I think that's the, the right word. <laughs> it, it was just in my face that, that, that level of uncertainty. I mean, I can really get both the intensity in some ways it sounds like brutality in the sense of this was forcing you into a place that is literally your most uncomfortable you're a data input person you want to control behavior by bringing in all the data so that you know what the outcome is going to be and this is just like being on the top of a huge diving board and not knowing when you jump off where the hell you're going to land and and what's going to happen. And so I can hear it's growth, but with growth comes pain, right? You was kind of... Oh, definitely. You, the width of it, the, the kind of extent of the pain of the not knowing, I guess is equal to the pain of being forced to learn new ways of being given that you yeah. have no control. Yeah, there's a, there's a pain in surrendering, which is what you basically need to do in this process. And it felt antithetical to my personality to distance myself in this way from this process. Because again, I, I tend to be the type that, you know, will leave no card unturned <laughs> in life when it comes to chasing my dreams and, and chasing opportunity. It was a very complicated set of feelings where I would find myself getting super excited and then remembering, oh, Maya, no, 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 you can't get too excited. You have to temper those emotions. You don't know what's going to happen. And so, like you said, it's a roller coaster right from the start. And then we get to the six week mark. And so we're, we're so happy that the, the pregnancy has, has persisted. And I still remember we were, you know, she was in Arkansas, we we're in California. So we got onto our little zoom chat and she was at the doctor and, and we can see our little baby girls beating heart. Aww. And it was just perfect to me. I mean, I just, that's what I thought. I was just like, this little baby looks perfect, which is so silly. It was just like a little, a little flashing light. But in my mind, that's how I thought of it. Yeah. It's your future with the baby, right? Your future, your family. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, even remember the day of the transfer, I was just like, I was clinging onto Jimmy's hand so tightly because it felt as though, yeah, we were at that climax moment where after years and years and years of laying down the foundations of this process, we are now finally approaching the summit and we are maybe going to be able to get what we wanted all along to happen. So we're, we're seeing this little baby beating heart and, and the doctor um, says, 
you know, she's measuring perfectly, her heart beats perfect. And um, all the while, by the way, because you talked about the complexity of these things, Jimmy and I are in this rabbit hole around exactly what multivitamin Haley should be taking during her pregnancy. So the neuroses have set in and we're doing all the things I'm sure that um, aspiring parents do everywhere, which is, you know, just making sure that your baby's going to be the healthiest, right? That's the, that's the thing we want more than anything. And so um, we're sitting talking about vitamins, literally, uh, on our bed at night, and we get a we get a text from Haley at midnight. So we, we've had the call maybe earlier in the afternoon, and then late at night we get a text saying, "Are you guys up?" Uh. And that's when I knew something was up because it was two hours later for her, just given the time zone. And I, you don't ask someone if they're up in the middle of the night unless something's bad. And so um, she calls us and says. Uh, I just started bleeding profusely and I don't know quite what's happening, but I just needed to, to share that with you. And then also I imagine she needed us to be there for her, you know, she had been there for us all this time and now we needed to be there for her. And we were still trying to be optimistic overnight, Julia, um, thinking, Maybe it's a blood clot. Maybe it's hematoma. You know, maybe maybe there's some other explanation for this. Yeah, holding on to the hope. Yeah, yeah the hope. It, it, you're thinking it just cannot be that I saw this perfect beating heart a few hours earlier, and now she's miscarrying. Like my brain kind of did the compute button and was like, does not register, not working, and just would reject that hypothesis. Because it is impossible to compute that, right? It, there's nothing that makes sense of that at all. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, there's nothing to make sense of it. And yet, because I have a secular mindset, we don't need anything to justify or make sense of it either, because bad things just, in my mind, bad things just happen all the time to people without reason, randomly. And so I also am carrying that mindset along the way, which is I don't think that good things happen to good people or that if you try really hard, you'll get good things. Because I just think life is so can be so cruel and so unfair to so many people. I mean, that's my personal view, obviously. Yeah, I agree with you. People have varying philosophical views about the nature of suffering and, and why we all go through it. But I, I was cognizant enough to know that I was not exceptional in any way, that I did not deserve this pregnancy more than anybody else, and that um, I might experience misfortune as well, just given my general philosophical orientation. But I'm balancing that with optimism because I'm also really excited about this, right? So again, complexity. And and also contradiction in some way, like holding two competing attitudes. Like I I have hope. I need to have hope. I need to believe this is going to be okay. And a more kind of pragmatic, bad things happen to good people all the time, randomly for no good reason. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so we get a call from Haley in the doctor's office and and she's crying and she just said yeah there's nothing there anymore there was something there yesterday and there's nothing there and um you know I've gone through a lot of change changes in my life like in my personal life and my professional life but I don't feel anything prepared me quite for that moment where I felt like my socks were knocked off and just the devastation. Yeah. Devastation is the best way to describe this. I remember, um, I I started working out with my, my fitness trainer and then I got the news and I just broke down and I was just like hugging him because I was so desperate for any kind of warmth and connection 
right? Someone to hold you, the desolation of it. Yeah. And by the way, like, I will always be so grateful to Matt Fuller for caring for me in that moment. I think when we go through life, we we don't expect to be there all the time for our friends' life-changing moments. But when we are there and when we step up and we make the person feel so loved and cared for, it's an overwhelming gift. And I, I just feel gratitude, honestly, that I was able to have someone there in that moment. And that it was him because he was a beautiful friend to me. I got to say, I rather love Matt Fuller in this moment too (laughs) for being that friend to you because I can see in your face the utter, total devastation. And thank goodness that he could just hold you. And when they feel your pain, you know it. Yeah. You know when that person has an unrivaled empathy. Yeah. And that they're feeling what you feel and you can't buy that. And so it was a gift for the very friend that I was with in that moment to have this emotional capacity within him to really grieve my loss with me. And I hope that others who are listening who have gone through a hard time, even if they didn't have it in that moment, were able to find that kind of love and support from unexpected places um, in the moments that they needed it most. And maybe give it too. And give it. And it, it changed my orientation about the way that I support people in their hardest moments. I, I, I mean, you try to always do your best. And then when you're on the receiving end, you realize how special and how tender and how loving those moments can be. And then you just try to rise to that occasion yeah. yourself in future moments yeah. it is as much about giving as it is, as it is receiving. So I was devastated. Uh, I was just completely and utter, utterly crushed and I tend to be fairly resilient, but I didn't feel like my resilience was kicking in. I mean, this is the part of that, you know, I'm, I'm trained as a cognitive scientist. This is the this is my frustration sometimes with some of the happiness research, which is baked into it is the implicit assumption that you will be resilient. The psychological immune system will kick in. And, and now they're, uh, researchers are obviously finding out more like prolonged grief and, and what that looks like. And I just remember thinking in that moment, okay, my brain's not, and I'm sure people can relate to this. My brain's not actually doing the thing that I was told it was due, it would do. It's not being resilient. <laughs> it's being very negative and very sad. And I felt like I had to take active steps to construct piece by piece resilience in me. It was a very intentional effort. Wow. And the reason I share this is that we often in society just tell people, oh my gosh, you're so resilient. Look at you, you're so strong, you're so brave, as though it is a fixed state of the world that either comes to you naturally or doesn't, and that's just where you're stuck. And in my case, that was not what happened, and I did not feel resilient, and I had to be, had to be very deliberate about finding a way forward. Because A, the simplicity of, you know, you will bounce back and you'll either will or you won't. But also, you and I have talked about this before, that there's no getting away from the pain of it. Yeah. So you are were very intentional about how you could build ways of supporting yourself to manage this level of pain. Yeah. But not without allowing yourself to let the pain come through you because there is no get-out clause for that. Yeah, and this is why I loved your book so much because you really emphasize that you must engage with it. <laughs> Running away from it isn't going to solve any problems, it'll probably create new ones. 
um, and the force of, you know, maladaptive coping mechanisms and whatnot. And Julia, I wish I had read your book before this happened, because I think I would have been better positioned to manage uh, what was happening. I was, I felt like I was kind of making things up. And then I was so grateful in the fall to have actually read your book (laughs) for for the second time. I have a dear friend, Michael Lewis. He's known to many people as as a famous author. I mean, he's written just marvelous books. And he's a He's a dear family friend of mine. And a few months after our miscarriage, Michael lost his 19-year-old daughter in a car accident. Oh, God. I remember going over to his house and saying, I just feel like everyone's trying to prescribe things for me right now. They're telling me, read this book, read that book, see this therapist, see that therapist. No, you should do yoga, do meditation, do this thing, do this thing. And he just realized that that wasn't working for him. And what he really needed to do in that moment was to figure out the Michael Lewis plan, a personalized plan that accounted for nuanced features of his personality that no one would be able to understand from the outside that was tailored to his needs and his emotional state and the way that he manages grief, which is a process of discovery. But over time, you might learn some of those things about yourself. And so that conversation really sat with me. And he literally said, like, I just feel like no one knows shit about grief because everyone's telling me to do things and it's not working. And if those things aren't fixing, like you said, the problem. And that's the, that's the hard work that we must all do when we grieve, which is to engage almost against our will because it is so deeply painful in an exploratory process to understand what it is that might help us heal. <laughs> this is where my data comes in again. I knew from data points from my past that I tend to cope best with loss when I turn it into some form of action. And I didn't know what that looked like at the moment, but I knew that that's what ends up making me feel fulfilled in some way. Um, we're all trying to find meaning and purpose in our loss. And for me, that action-oriented approach was 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 my way of trying to find um, meaning and purpose. And so that was actually the genesis for my podcast, A Slight Change of Plan. Yeah. I was completely disoriented by change Broadly speaking, the pandemic, racial injustice upheaval in the U.S., um, suffering worldwide, of course, and it all felt very unprecedented. And then the change that was happening in my personal life felt especially unprecedented. And I started a slight change of plans with the hope that I could mine other people's stories for wisdom and insight that could help me unlock the pieces to my own personal grief journey. Because what Michael Lewis and you are saying is we are as different on the inside as we look on the outside. Mm. There are no off-the-shelf things that work. How-to manuals for these devastating, life-changing experiences where, you know, it tears up the rule book of life that your baby or his daughter should die. I mean, you never expect that to happen. Yeah. And so... What's so powerful in what I'm understanding from you is that you did face your pain and you knew yourself well enough to know, okay, I feel this bad. And when I feel this bad, turning some of that into action is what in some ways enables me to live with the unbearable pain of it. It doesn't take it away, it doesn't fix it, but it gives me something to look for. Yeah, purpose and meaning. It gives. I don't know if it's hope, but it gives me a little flicker of light to head towards. That's exactly right, and it will be different for each person. 
maybe they were so overwhelmed by the intensity and rapid pace of their own lives that actually taking a step back in the face of grief is the right antidote, right? And maybe that would be the right antidote for me at a later stage in my life or at a different stage in my life. It's just in that moment when the world was shutting down and we felt more disconnected than ever and I was starving for human connection and social connection. I felt like I need these conversations. It, It came from such a personal place. I need these conversations for myself. And so I start the podcast with this goal of interviewing people who have navigated these extraordinary changes and have navigated extraordinary loss and pain and suffering and grief. And it's been the greatest gift of my adult life. And I get pretty emotional talking about it because I did not know when I, at the outset, what this show would mean to me and how it would connect me with people all over the world. And I know you see this in your work and I know that we have very similar loving, kind, loyal fans of, of our respective shows yeah, and, yeah. and work. And it's just, I feel like I live in this, like, in my experience, social media is amazing <laughs> because yeah. I have connected with so many amazing human beings in my very limited experience. I never did social media before, um, before the show, but on Instagram, it just, it just gives me a lens into other people's worlds every single day when listeners reach out to me about an episode that resonated with them or a coping strategy that they use that they want to share or how the show helped them in some way through some of their most challenging times. And that forge of that forge of connection with strangers reminds you in a way when the world, you know, grief is so lonely and isolating and chilly, it kind of warms you in the place that you need warmth most, which is in your heart. The yeah. kindness of strangers is unbelievably curative. Yes, it really is. And I remember um, we were launching the second season and a year and a half had passed because of COVID. We couldn't try with Haley again. And finally, it was, we were cleared. It was safe for us to try again. And again, we transfer one embryo. And as we're approaching the six-week mark, I feel like I'm getting irrationally anxious that a miscarriage might happen again. And it feels irrational because I'm thinking to myself, why would it be the case that on exactly the six-week mark, this would happen again? Maya, get out of your head. Stop being so nervous. And then exactly on the exact same day of development as in the first pregnancy, Haley texts us and says, I'm bleeding. And I was thinking there's just no way. Like It didn't compute. It definitely did not compute because how bizarre that this would happen on exactly the same day as last time. And she goes to the doctor and we get the highest high of news that we can possibly get. The doctor, remember he had this sweet Southern drawl and he tells us, well, good news, which is the baby's in there and her heart's beating again perfectly and she's measuring perfectly. And then he scrolls over the ultrasound a little more and he goes, and there's actually another one. <laughs> and I just remember wow. that our, our, our little embryo had split into identical twin girls and both of them were, were thriving. And he said, I think there's just genuinely a blood clot or something like that. And so there's no reason to worry. Um, maybe Haley go on bed rest, but you're good. And then um, I go home and you know, we have all these defense mechanisms that we put up. I remember that morning, as soon as um, Haley had texted me about the fact she was bleeding, I uninstalled the What to Expect app 
on my phone, you know, for like expected mm-hmm. mothers, you get to think about the milestones. Oh, this week your baby's the size of a pea and next week your baby's the size of a whatever grapefruit. And I uninstalled it because I just couldn't bear to see that on my phone if in no. fact it was a miscarriage. And so I was texting Haley saying, you know, ha ha, um, I just uninstalled this, I installed this, un- uninstalled this app earlier today. Turns out we really need it because we're now going to see twins growing and developing. And she kind of wrote back saying, mm, maybe not so fast. And oh. then tells us that she is, sorry, I don't want to be graphic about this, but she's mm. literally expelled like the entire, um, yeah. And so, uh, um, it's a lot to say, just to remember it is so much, Maya. Thank you for being courageous. You know, we had to see pictures because we had to confirm with the doctors what it was. And it was like the full placenta. Oh. And I just felt sick yeah. to my stomach. This is all happening within a four hour window. And and then all of this is unfolding over the course of the day where we think it's terrible news. And then she goes to the doctor and then we get like amazing news. Oh my gosh, all we ever wanted was one. Now you're telling us there's two. And then an hour after that, she is, she definitely has a, a miscarriage. And um, I remember calling the doctors and you, you just can hear, um, again, that, that kindness, again, doctors aren't strangers, Matt Fuller's not a stranger, but when our doctor, um, Dr. Shaw showed us that, like I could hear in her voice how much she cared for us and how much yeah. she was feeling our pain, it just meant the world to me. I'll never forget that conversation. And so, yeah, just another reminder, I guess, to everyone, like how much we can influence people, their, some of their wor- worst moments in life, just by being so present and so loving. And so she said, guys, I've never seen this happen before in our clinic. Um, my best guess is that Haley is having some sort of autoimmune reaction to your embryos. So when the baby gets to a certain stage of development, maybe, maybe she was growing in ears, maybe she was growing a nose, we don't know. Her body rejected it. It, it saw it as... Um, equivalent to say a kidney transplant, like rejecting a kidney, right? You, and so, um, that's our explanation for maybe what's gone on. And, you know, we did genetic tests later on the, on the fetuses and, um, they were both genetically normal. And so it just kind of corroborated this view that maybe there was just a incompatibility in our biologies. And that was heartbreaking because for three people to love each other as much as they did and to find out that a biological incompatibility was going to stand in the way of us being able to create this baby um, was really, was really devastating. It's another level of loss, no? It's Oh, definitely. One is the single baby and then the twin pregnancy and then Haley as your surrogate, as your family member who you'd really loved. I mean, and all in a matter of hours. It's overwhelming. Jimmy, my husband noticed that when we were in the room watching the videos of, of, of the ultrasounds, um, I kept saying, I'm just so glad it gets to be with Haley. I'm so glad it gets to be with Haley. Like I was more focused in that moment, actually, on Haley being our surrogate than I even was on the babies being there and being healthy. So yeah, I, it's it's hard for me to overstate how how much we loved and love her. And we were told that we couldn't work with her again. You know, and both sides were devastated. Yeah, that is utterly devastating. I'm, and what I'm, I'm aware of so much of sort of feeling so sad in my body and I feel quite tearful hearing you because it is such a devastating story. 
and also how the past is never really in the past. Mm. It's like you're living your life and I, I want to know where you are now having faced this great challenge. But this is part of you. This, is, this isn't something that you turn a page and you move forward. This is something that is inside you forever. Yeah. We become different people when we go through most of life's experiences. I mean, we're constantly evolving, but there are certain ones that feel more transformative than others in terms of our development and how much those moments stick with us. And I think this is one of them for me. And what has changed? I mean, I've learned that people loving you and being warm to you (laughs) on every level is what really can be transformative, not transformative, can help you bear the worst. Yeah. But how has it changed you? changed me in a pretty profound way. It was very unexpected. Um, and you know this, I ended up sharing uh, my story on a slight change of plans. It's called Maya's Slight Change of Plans. And I actually only had this discovery in real time as I was talking with my producer two days after the miscarriage um, that, I had, I, that I'd even learned this lesson. And so what I realized in that moment was, wow, how much I need the show, how much did I need this show right now to process my own feelings and thoughts out loud that were all so underdeveloped and just boiling in my brain and I just yeah. couldn't make sense of anything. And and so my producer and I kind of at the same time thought, well, you've been asking of your guests to share these moments with you for the last year. Maybe you share yours. And so that's what I did. So I got in the studio and I... You did. It's a beautiful episode. Thank you. Yeah. I um, Hardest thing I've ever done, <laughs> for sure. Most personal thing I've put out there. Because um, I never expected to turn the microphone on myself, you know. And what I learned and the profound insight I had is you know, I mentioned earlier, Julia, that I'm this kind of type A, you know, action-oriented, goal-driven, outcome-driven person. And in a lot of life, that can serve you very well. And I don't want to do away with that personality trait altogether. But I think what this experience taught me is that even though we didn't get the outcome in this case that we had all hoped for, which was a baby, the relationship that I formed with Haley was so meaningful and so profound in its own right, like that matters too. And so part of life is actually letting go of the steering wheel and letting go of that map you've drawn out in your head of how you get from point A to point B and and what's involved and what B is going to look like. And instead, creating space for unexpected, beautiful gifts to enter your life. And the fact that we didn't end up with a baby does nothing to diminish in any way the relationship, the lifelong relationship and friendship that I formed with Haley, that Jimmy and I formed with Haley. And I don't think I realized that before this happened, that that was of equal importance. It matters too. That's so profound, isn't it? That we can have this kind of set picture for ourselves and driving the car, as you said, and knowing the route to get from A to B. And when this kind of bomb blew all of that picture up and you allowed yourself to pause, it sounds like, and feel the pain of that loss, which is an intense loss. You also discovered that the relationship and love for Haley is really significant and you will have that for life and that is what has allowed you to grow through the trauma of it 
Yeah. And it's, you know, you would think sometimes in moments like this, you, an instinct might be to feel regret or just lament the past. And the reason I knew that this lesson was real is I did not, I did not feel that way in that moment. I was devastated and I was so sad, but to regret would mean that I didn't want the relationship with, with Haley to have formed. And I feel, you know, we can often so say like, Oh, this whole thing was for nothing. It's so easy to say that it's a throwaway phrase. This whole thing was for nothing. And just realizing that there's a something in almost every experience, however harrowing, and to try to hold on to that something because it may be very valuable and very significant. Yeah, to hold on to something, even if it's small, could end up being very significant and valuable. And we don't have very long. I feel so touched by you. And I wonder where you are on your fertility journey. (laughs) Um, I think it took a while for us to figure out where we were emotionally after this. And of course, it, it was so interesting. It felt like a betrayal for us to even try to work with anyone other than Haley. It really felt that way. Like we were being unfaithful. We were being unfaithful to her. What an interesting life relationship, right? And, you know, eventually we reached back out to our surrogacy agency and, uh, you know, reinitiated stuff. And, and then more recently, uh, we decided that we're just going to, we're going to take a pause. We're going to take a break for a right. bit because we've been at this now for over five years. And I think Jimmy and I just need some space to breathe and just kind of just have your day, love each other. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Where this is not the thing that's top of mind. I would never have allowed myself that kind of luxury in the past, I feel, this break. (laughs) So that does feel like a very powerful lesson too, rather than being constantly kind of goal-oriented but I mean, and maybe this is the wrong term, but it feels like a slight change of plans is a different kind of birthing, different mm. kind of baby. I mean, I don't know if that's the wrong terminology, but it feels like... No, it's not. That's how I feel. It absolutely feels that way. It feels like this baby that I created over the last few years that gives me so much sustenance and um it's a real relationship that's growing and changing like like a baby I know and I know that you can relate to this because I see the kinds of comments your listeners leave for you and I see the reaction people have to your work and to the episodes that you've put out um it's really hard to describe in words how wonderful it feels to be an, an individual person living in one part of the world and to feel so deeply emotionally connected with people all over the world yeah, and that they trust you enough to share their slight change of plan story with you, even though they don't know you. They've just heard your voice in their ears <laughs> for some time, but it does feel like a bi-directional relationship of trust and love. And I'm so indebted to my slight changers. <laughs> their nickname. Yeah. Slight changers. Yeah. So I just feel yeah. so indebted to them for keeping me, keeping my spirits high and making me feel like what I'm putting out into the world is bringing value and meaning and, um, and joy into their lives. It's, it's so special. And it's funny, Julia, that you said something so beautiful that I've since cited so many times uh, to people and it's kind of the ethos of the show. And I think it's the, it's, it's at the core of the way that you chose to write your books, which is, it's very satisfying. It's very comforting to read clean narratives about people 
you feel a sense of hope and peace in reading that. But then it never actually maps on to your real life experiences. And so you just feel alienated from those stories after that initial, you know, reassurance set in, immediately reject it because you're like, wait a second, this does not map on at all to what I'm going through. And I was very nervous when I was first developing a slight change of plans because it felt awfully raw. <laughs> there's no bows being tied at the end of episodes. There's a lot of open wounds. There's, there's growth and reflection, but I didn't want to betray life's complexities by pretending on behalf of anyone that it was a simple narrative or that the story closed in this really satisfying way. And so I was worried that there might not be an appetite for that. And it's been so heartening to see that actually that's what people want the most. And you gave me greater confidence when we had that chat that I should stick yeah. to the plan and keep yes. doing what I was doing and, and keep trying to provide an unvarnished glimpse into people's change stories because um, it, it might be a little harder to hear in the moment, but the lessons and the learnings and the insights and what stay with you will be so much more profound as a result. Because it does match your internal experience that life isn't just you know the bottom of the step and you walk up the steps to this stairway to heaven life is full of unpredictable unknowable unpreparable ups and downs and when we can see that the most personal is also the most universal that other people have navigated it in their way and our way won't be there that way but you hear something in them that you can recognize in yourself, that is sustaining and connecting. And you go, oh, okay, I'm not bonkers. We're coming to the end of this conversation. It feels so raw and honest of you. And I know we'll be heard in the same way as listeners here to your, your podcast. And we, I mean, we've only probably spoken, I don't know, three times or something. But I feel like we really have met each other's hearts. I mean, I and through the work that we do. And that's such an amazing, for me, that honestly makes me feel tearful saying it. I just feel like we've known each other a little bit. And that is a, a heart-meeting, wonderful experience. Yeah. As you know, those feelings are fully requited. I think we were, in our in our little WhatsApp chat, we were marveling at how close we felt to one another so quickly. Yeah. And um, I think it is through consuming one another's work and also to see how much overlap there is in, in our goals and yeah. the way that we approach what we do. But also, um, yeah, I think we had just one of those instant heart connections <laughs> because I also feel just so at ease with you and so comfortable and, and so loved by you. And that puts me in, that puts any human into a different state of mind, which is very yeah. special. Yeah, I feel very loving towards you right now. And so <laughs> Thanks, grateful, Maya, for being so open and honest. And on behalf of everyone listening, thank you, because they will see themselves in you. So thank you so much. I hope so. And it was a pleasure to chat with you. And I really do hope that this can help those who are listening. So thanks. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, 
it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, hello, Sophie and Emily. So we're going to talk about Maya Shanker and her incredibly moving episode and the devastation of what she went through and how she managed that and what she learned from that. And I know that it echoes some of your experience, Em. Oh, yeah. I mean, when I sort of went to make some notes about this interview, I'm reading back through the notes I made as I listened. I did a lot of crying um, while I was listening to this. And she just spoke so beautifully to her incredibly painful experience of trying to have a child. And, you know, as you and so both know, I sort of like wanted is not even the right word, like needed a a child since I was really young, actually, like since sort of around 25-ish. And um, then my husband and I did our own fertility treatments and were incredibly, incredibly lucky. And now, you know, we have a little three-year-old boy and a a one-and-a-half-year-old. But like, ooh, even just thinking about it now, I felt a mixture of the pain, like just pain of wanting so much that it's almost unbearable Mm -hmm. and that thing like trying to keep hope while also trying to not have hope because the pain of losing the hope is so excruciating and how do you manage those two things at the same time and I think that she said that was incredibly powerful speaking to that was everything in fertility humbles you and that kind of idea it's the hope that kills you and also you can't do it without the hope it's so you're in limbo entirely aren't you yeah I have this very clear memory of um (laughs) the first IVF round part of it is that you have to go early in the morning and get ultrasound and a blood test and I went in there for the sort of first time and I was sort of like at that point quite sort of excited, I think. I was like, oh, you know, there's a lot of build up and there's a lot of like, no, we can't start yet because of this thing. And no, then we can't start because of this thing. There's always like these delays, endless delays as well. Um, And then I sort of went in there and there was like maybe 10 other women all there and their faces I was like oh my gosh (laughs) is that what I is that what I'm going to be like almost like shut down I mean partly because it was at 7 a.m in the morning so it's quite early but almost like war like face where I just remember feeling like oh okay it's sort of a bit like a weird battle Battle. in its own way where you feel so much, but you're also trying not to. <laughs> um, and then and then all sorts of other pains of other people getting pregnant who you really love and that complicated dance. But I, I mean, I think the other thing that it made me feel, and I think this was partly why I was crying so much, is just so grateful <laughs> as well. Yeah. Um, ha- having our two children, it's honestly been more than I could imagine and such a incredible blessing really thanks em i thought the courage with which she spoke about holding the unknown of it 
especially if you are someone with that sort of type A, like to be control, in control personality, they're kind of, um, you know, she talked about like not having a neat ending and you together talked about telling stories that aren't all resolved at the end because life isn't like that. And the energy it takes, I guess, to really stay with life when it isn't going the way that you hoped it would. And also that that no one can tell you the ending, because I think so much of fertility treatment is like, if someone could tell you at the beginning, okay, like in three years time, you've got to do all this really hard stuff and it's going to be painful and it's going to be difficult. But in three year time, you'll have, you'll have a baby. Then you'd be like, fine. Like I can do anything. I can do anything for that. But no one can tell you the not that. knowing it's the it's the limbo isn't it it's yeah. the not knowing so therefore having to somehow stay in your life right being able to appreciate and have gratitude for your own life because otherwise you just there's no you're obsessed with the thing that you might never get and or, or you don't know if and when you could get it but that's so hard <laughs> and you're, inevitably of course with all of us I, mean, I think we've all had experience of longing for something or wanting something that we can't control you move in and out I of I know I least I move in and out of obsession <laughs> of like obsess 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 no try and bring myself back obsess 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 and the obsession is trying to tweak it isn't it trying like, to control it mm. if I can do if I do this maybe that will do it if I think like this maybe that will do it if I wear pink maybe that will do it yes and and then you have people telling you stuff which is always so freaking unhelpful like I remember my husband and I going to stay with these friends and it's a lovely woman but you know she'd had two children in her like early 40s really easily she just said Emily you just need to relax when I was younger I tried to get pregnant and I couldn't get pregnant and then this time around all I did was just be really relaxed and I could see I could see my husband I could see him watching me be like oh my god what's she gonna do (laughs) what's she gonna do (laughs) being relaxed is not science and like Mm. I biologically can't do this naturally and being relaxed maybe it would help but I'm pretty sure that you know you have to ovulate to have a baby so I don't Mm. think being relaxed is (laughs) necessarily gonna help me um so I mean, people, good intentioned people Mm. say stupid things sometimes. And also that you can't control how you feel. You can control how you respond, how you feel. If you're feeling incredibly stressed and anxious, as anyone would in these sorts of situations, and maybe a bunch of other things, angry, scared, that the only thing you can do is take care of yourself in that. You can't not have the feeling. (laughs) So that's partly why it's such an unhelpful response, isn't it? I think the other thing is... The ignorance around fertility treatment and unbelievable toll emotionally and physically that it brings, you know, it's really, really tough. Actually, as you were speaking, I was thinking about Jimmy, her husband, that, you know, women don't get enough acknowledgement. But I actually think dads get almost none at all. It's like they're all they are is the walking sperm donor. They don't get fully acknowledged for the the emotional toll on them and how much they want it and how hard it is for them. And to that point, she spoke very powerfully about small acts of compassion and care from other people and how that thing of you can't make it better. And this is true for so many situations when something really hard, painful or terrible has happened. And yet you can ease the, you know, when she talked about doctors, how they break news 
or how they communicate something. You can ease the worst moments of someone's life by not making it worse and by having a sense of common humanity. Yes, and I think exactly like you have in your book, Mum, and that you and her were talking about, that sometimes there's no option to go around the pain. You have to just go through the pain. And to be able to be a person who can bear witness to that, her trainer did in that moment. I loved him. Um, And also that her doctor did in the moment of breaking that news, the realisation of how devastating that was. And... I think that that empathy, I mean, this is empathy, it, it makes such a big difference. Um, and my other thoughts were on a slightly different track or really around resilience and thinking about how resilience is not born, but it's made. I think we know from research that some people are genetically predisposed to be more resilient than others. But if you're thinking about your children and how to build resilience in your children, which is a real buzzword, I think, at the moment, everyone talks about how do we build resilient children? Um, I mean, I think the main thing is all the research shows that the single biggest factor is having a stable relationship with one parent or caregiver or adult relationship. That is the biggest thing. But there are definitely other things that can go into building resilience for your child that can also really, really help. I think one of the interesting things from research is that stress for your children is actually quite important and okay. So not huge traumatic stress, but the sort of day-to-day stress that most children will face in their life, like falling out with a friend, having to do exams, getting stressed about a big sports competition, that kind of level of stress that a child is then able to manage with the help of a supportive adult is actually incredibly important in building resilience because building the resilience muscle and the more training it has, when you get to adulthood, you're able to cope with adversity because you've had some experiences of coping with adversity with help. And I think that... Of course, we want to protect our children and prevent them from difficulty. But actually, if you have a child who somehow has managed to go through life without having to face any kind of stress at all, when you get to adulthood and you have the stresses of adulthood, actually, that is incredibly overwhelming. And so I just think that it's really helpful to know that those things that are hard for our children are actually, as long as they're helped through them and as long as they're not of huge, really overwhelming, stressful things, it's actually doing something positive. Yeah, and I think Maya was a role model for that. And I I know we don't kind of talk about her specifically, but she'd already had very difficult things happen to her. Like she was a professional musician and she had an accident that she couldn't play and she had a very good relationship with her parents. So she had the wiring, as it were, of how to pick yourself up, you know, that it, resilience isn't about not feeling the pain, but how to weather the pain and what supports you. I actually think one of the things we all say is that wanting to be okay also helps. It makes so much sense, doesn't it? That idea of sort of trial runs essentially in childhood where someone gets to hold your hand and you get to m- create a model of in an ideal world, a model of how to manage pain and stress 
with the support of someone else so that when you start taking the bike wheels off a bike, isn't it? And then you can cycle on your own in adulthood um, and to co-regulate you, right? So that you keep ideally keeping yourself and, and as children as children within that window between the complete panic zone, um, but in the stress zone where we learn something about how to navigate the world. And that's what someone else and what sort of care and love and attention of another person can do. And that's true in childhood, but it's also true in adulthood, isn't it? In terms of resilience, is that the love bonds and the bonds of care between us and other people is one of the biggest factors in helping us tolerate pain. I have such a specific memory of when I was 14 and our grandfather died and I found out when I was at school and he'd been ill for a long time and he was old so it was really sad but it wasn't a sort of shock in a way that sometimes death is is a sort of massive shock and he was sort of in his 80s but it still felt like this is the first person that I probably have known that has died and I felt just really shaken and I remember coming home and mum, you were lying in the garden on one of those like lounger chairs. <laughs> and I just remember I just came and like, I just lay on top of you and we were like underneath a tree. Oh, it's so And I just remember like, <sighs> like I can breathe. Like, like I remember oh. feeling so shaken, but also really, really safe. And I think that is just like a little micro example of like, I, I had this stressful thing. It wasn't a huge, enormous thing. It was still a thing. And having someone there with me to remind me that I was safe, like the world was okay, I could continue. And I think things like that, they build those building blocks of resilience. Oh, it makes me cry in a little <laughs> moment of being a good mother rather than a bad mother. It's really fab. Thanks, Em. <laughs> a pleasure. <laughs> So the the other thing I wanted to just comment on really is about family and love and that I really do believe the power of love in kinship that we can make our family. I think we can over-exaggerate the importance of blood family and ignore the value of the of the family that we make through kinship, through love. And the love between Haley and Jimmy and Maya was also what built in their resilience, wasn't it? That they, that it was also part of the devastation, but it was also what sustained them. Mm. It was so beautiful. And also, I think, a most incredible example of being open for love, like being open to that relationship building and being so foundational to all of them. And remaining open somehow to what is rather than what you wish it was. I think I, at least I know for myself and that I can get so preoccupied by what I wish things were like that I then don't feel connection to what I actually have at times. And that seems such a beautiful example of somehow still being able to be open to feeling gratitude for what she did experience alongside the devastation of what didn't happen. That's really true. And that's a beautiful place to stop. So, so thank you, Emily and Sophie. And particularly a huge thank you to Maya for being so open and courageous in talking to us about such a personal and difficult subject. So all of you listeners do share this link if it's someone you think it might be supportive to them. Uh, it helps us if you rate and review the podcast. 
and thank you for listening. Thank you.